0: Well, it's been a while since I sat in this thing. Sitting in a Russian airplane for the first time, your G-Wiz meter goes up just a little bit. This program's existence was very, very closely held secret. We fly 16 MiG-21s a day, Tuesday through Friday, week after week after week.
1: What were some of the things that needed to be done to keep it secret? The security of the program was paramount. If an adversary satellite was
0: gonna be overhead taking imagery photos of our area, we would be in a hangar. We
2: were prepping for World War III. Did the Soviet Union have any kind of similar training using American airplanes? Perhaps don't believe every story that you hear. What was
1: the fastest you ever flew the MiG-23?
0: It was a second and a half from idle power to full afterburner. The MiG-23 would not turn. How did we
1: acquire these
0: airplanes? The word secret is an interesting word, right? How did you simulate Soviet missiles? We had their stuff. just doesn't get much cooler than that.
2: Hi, I'm Chuck Stout, curator at the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. And in this special, you asked for it, you got it episode of our Behind the Wings podcast. We're gonna go back for part two of our conversation with a person who was part of a top secret U.S. Air Force program, Constant Peg. We'll talk to a pilot who flew the MiG-23 in the first of its kind adversary training program. And because this was such a popular episode, we'll also take a deep dive into your questions because that's what we do this for. This one's gonna be cool. So if you missed part one, go check that out on our YouTube channel. In that one, we do a complete walk around of the whole MiG-23, including the cockpit. If you like the show, give us a review. It's one of the best ways for us to get the word out there, and we really appreciate it. Now, if you want to see this MiG-23, come on down to the museum. You can see that and about 70 other aircraft and spacecraft. With all that out of the way, it's time to go behind the wings. Let's get started. John Mann, welcome to the show. Could you please introduce yourself?
0: Well, thanks Chuck, yes. Uh, thanks to you and to John Barry for having me up here. This is a great museum and you guys do great work. I'm, I'm really honored to be invited. I just uh, spent 24 and a half years in the Air Force flying airplanes and I happened to have a chance to fly the MiG-21, the MiG-23 MiG
2: and the Constant Peg program. And uh, that's what we're
0: talking about today, I think.
2: We'll get more into constant peg in a little bit, but I'd appreciate it if you'd go into how you got into flying. Sure. And tell us about some of the airplanes that you flew along the way. I was fortunate enough
0: to be able to attend the Air Force Academy. Graduated the class in 1973 along with John. We're next door, and uh, I was in cadet in 25. He was in 26. And that gave me a good springboard into going to, to pilot training. One of the key things that helped me a lot are my first class year, which is our senior year as a cadet. I went down to the second floor of Fairchild Hall where we had simulators, and I spent several hours a week down there with the instructors there to teach me how to fly. They did a great job, and they gave me a leg up on all my peers when I went to pilot training. It was a great prep, so I really owe a lot to those four instructors to help me get a good start. So I attended pilot training at Craig Air Force Base, and when I graduated, I got to fly F-4s. I flew those at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida, Osan Air Base in Korea, and then Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. At Holloman, we changed to the F-15. And I was also uh, selected to attend the Air Force's Fighter Weapons School at Nellis Air Force Base. And so all those things kind of came together and gave me a really good fighter background. I was able to fly as a trainee in the Constant Peg program up to the, that point,
2: And then later, I was selected to
0: fly the airplanes themselves and be the trainer.
2: To me, it seems like kind of a big jump from flying regular duty in an F-15 to ending up flying the enemy's airplanes in secret bases in the desert. How do you make that transition?
0: The Air Force itself had uh, two gateways. You had to either complete the aggressor training program or complete the fire weapons school training program. And if you could pass one of those two, those were gateways that enabled you to be considered. And after that, it was pretty much a request to come out and interview and you went through an interview process
2: and that would result in your selection. After you were selected to go and train against Soviet equipment at Constant Peg. Tell me what that was like to show up as a student to learn to fight against the enemy's airplanes. Sure, and
0: I'll do some context here. Remember, this was the post 60s, mid 70s. The Cold War was brewing big time. We had not done well in Southeast Asia. We were really working hard to fly well. We were wondering if we could beat MiG aircraft and so forth. And so to be selected to go up and train against the airplanes, my first one to train against was the MiG-17. I just remember getting up in the skies over Tonopah and seeing that airplane flying, and I went, wow, there it is, we've got it, and this guy's gonna teach me how to beat him. And then later in the week, the MiG-21 will come up, and that guy's gonna teach me how to beat the MiG-21. We had their stuff. It just doesn't get much cooler than that. And so it was very exhilarating. The training was just as I described, by the end of the week, I felt very confident in how to handle myself against those airplanes. It was just huge, Chuck, hugely good program. This was training that did apply though because we were prepping for World War III. I see. See, this was all about the next one. We hadn't done real well in Vietnam, and so we had all these other training programs coming alive, Red Flag, dedicated adversary program called the Aggressors, and now the Constant Peg program. We had some very visionary leadership in the air force that brought all these things together and again i i still remember seeing that silver airplane flying over tonopah and i'm going i want to learn how to beat this thing
1: okay so now we're here to talk about a little bit about the MIGs that sure. uh, were part of the training program that both of us participated in i never flew but you got the chance to fly the mig 23 and the mig 21. so let's talk about the mig 23 big airplane, tell us a little bit about the training, how you got ready to be able to make that transition and what are the highlights for you? Sure,
0: back history just a little bit, the Constant Peg program had big 17s, 21s and 23s. By the time I got to fly the airplanes, the 17s were gone. We all started off in the 21. To get kind of used to the Russian system, kind of used to the Russian airplanes, it was a simpler airplane. And then some of us went from the 21 into the 23. So the 21 was a springboard to get into the 23. And then we had, we're basically in-house instructor. We'd go over academics on the 23, how it, the systems worked and so forth. We'd sit in the cockpit, become familiar with the cockpit, taxi it around a little bit, and then close camping, take
2: off and go fly. Let's do a listener question. One of our listeners has asked the question about uh, how exactly did U.S. pilots learn to fly Soviet airplanes? Were there manuals? Were there ground training classes before you got in the cockpit? When I got there, we'd been
0: flying the airplanes for quite some time, and so the guys that went before me plowed that ground, so to speak. And how exactly they did that, I really couldn't tell you, but there was an awful lot of, let's practice this on the ground, taxiing, let's practice this just flying around a little bit, let's practice this flying around a little bit faster, baby steps to where they could actually fly the airplanes and understand how they really fly. By the time I got there, it was pretty well a cooked thing. So what we would do is have a couple of days on the MiG-21, a couple of days of ground school. Then we would go out and pre-flight the airplane and sit in it. And I want to try to project that as cool as we might've thought we were, sitting in a Russian airplane for the first time is you know, your G-wiz meter goes up just a little bit. So we'd sit in it, crank the engine, shut down, crank the engine, shut down. And then in the MiG-21, we'd taxi it around a couple of times and then just go fly it. In the MiG-23, basically the same thing. We'd have ground school for a couple of days, go out and sit in it, I had been flying the MiG-21, so the newness of a Russian airplane wasn't quite the same thing, but the 23 cockpit is not well organized, I don't think. And so there's a lot of getting used to that
2: kind of stuff, touching switches and so forth, then you go off and fly it. So procedurally, would that be similar to what you would do in checking out in a new American airplane, new to you?
0: Basically, yes, learning the systems,
2: becoming familiar,
0: and then flying it. But with the American airplanes, you have simulators, we have good documents and they have a two-seat airplane, normally, not always, but normally you have a two-seat airplane that you have an instructor with. But yes, the s- same basic steps.
2: And we have simulators. <coughs> simulators, yeah. yes, yeah. you betcha. And the instruments read in feet and knots. <laughs> you didn't have
1: simulators for make 21 to 23. Yeah. That's correct. Right.
2: I'm surprised that our people didn't get on it and create simulators just to have a, a more diverse and safe training fleet. but. That was the old days when it was all analog simulators, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, Chuck, and now let's go back also. It was the Cold War was still on. This program's existence was very, very closely held secret. So to go out into industry and say, we need a simulator that does X, Y, and Z, I'd build a cover. Ah. So that's just not going to happen.
1: So John, you know, (laughs) these airplanes, when they came and you started flying them, what adjustments were made for American pilot to fly a MiG-23?
0: Well, first of all, of course, was the basic airworthiness. Our maintenance guys tore the airplanes apart, inspected, repaired, put them back together to make sure the airplane itself would fly. Within the cockpit, we kept everything as stock as we possibly could. The fuel gauge in the MiG-21 was horrible, but we kept it because we were trying to keep the thing as real as possible. Russian airplanes come with instruments that are metric, not how high are you in feet, but in meters. That's different. So we would put airspeed indicators in that we're used to, altimeters that we're used to. We would put a U.S. oxygen system in, so that some basic creature comforts were things we were used to. Other than that, the airplanes we flew them like the, We got them.
1: Of course, single-seat airplane. There's single nobody going to be in the back seat checking you out. Yeah. Uh, explain a little bit about some of the challenges you had when your first time you flew. I remember there's a story about the taxiing a MiG-23.
0: Well, the, the MiG-23 that we flew actually had nose gear steering. It also had a nose wheel brake. Couldn't work both those at the same time they fought each other. So for taxiing, we turned the brake off and, and the nose gear steering on. Then for takeoff and landing, we used the nose brake. It was very, very helpful for stopping the airplane. I think to your question about the 23 itself, it's a much more complex cockpit. The swing wings add a lot to it. There's not a lot of human engineering that puts all these things together. You can't just automatically go find switches and stuff like that. It was just a level of complexity higher than the 21. The swing wings, the flaps were uh, not for maneuvering, the flaps were for takeoff and landing. A very powerful engine. It was a second and a half from idle power to full afterburner. That thing ran up just like that. And when you had an afterburner, hang on to your hat, you're gonna go fast. And you're gonna go fast quickly. So there was that also.
1: I had the opportunity in the 422 Test and Evaluation squadron, Nellis, to be part of flying against the MiGs. Sure. And one of the things that I found fascinating, you know, a profile that we did on one particular mission was I got behind the MiG and we started from there in a dogfight. Then he got behind me and we started a dogfight. And then we did 180 degree pass and, you know, did a dogfight. And I was surprised at how poorly the airplane turned, you know, as it went, but it was fast. and. I guess the tactic a little bit, if you want to talk about it, was more hit and run.
0: Well, if you're talking about the 23, the MiG 23 would not turn. I mean, it just would not. You could pull about one G for every 100 knots. So if you wanted to pull six Gs, you'd be at 600 knots. And your radius of your turn is a function of the square of your airspeed. So 600 knots at six Gs compares in your F4, you'd pull six Gs at 420 knots. and F16 or 15, you'd pull six Gs at 380 knots those turns don't compare at all. And we used to talk about how much lead to pull to close on someone. And if you pull too much, you could get in trouble. There's no such thing as pulling too much lead against the MiG-23, because it is not going to turn inside your circle. So yes, the MiG-23 turned very poorly. And if you were to find a MiG-23 pilot that was going to try to turn with you, he was going to be easy to beat because he wasn't wasn't very good.
1: What was the fastest you ever flew the MiG-23?
0: That brings up an interesting aspect to flying the airplane. When you put it in the afterburner, like I said earlier, the power was immediate and it was a lot of power, but within the cockpit, the throttle would actually lock into the afterburner position. I don't know why they designed it that way, but it did. And it actually took a, a second or two of effort to undo the finger lock and get it out of afterburner. In the meantime, you're really accelerating, especially if you're going downhill. So you could overshoot your desired airspeed by 100 knots and not know it. And then you have to come to that realization and do something to fix it. And while you're doing all that, the airplane's not shaking or vibrating. There's no cues that you're going, instead of going 550, you're doing 650 or 700. There's no cues to let you know that. It's a very awkward airplane to fly. It doesn't have the tactile feelings that some airplanes do have. So yes, hit and run was the way to go. If you did try to turn, it wasn't gonna work. So if I was engaging with that airplane, I would never be below 550 knots. Another aspect of this, John, was if I'm in an F-15 going against an F-16, we we're both at 425, 450 knots. And so if the F-16 is gonna to try to flank me and get behind me, he's gonna be three or four miles off to the side. And we had criteria on our radars for assessing that and saying he's a threat, he's not a threat. But the MiG-23 had such speed that when we were going from long distances, we would ask our GCI to give us a 15 mile offset. So all the us trained F-15, F-16 pilots would go, he's too far off to the side, he's not a threat. And we would ask for the 10-mile rollout. And after 10 miles, we'd put in afterburners, smoke up to 700 knots, and you could close pretty quickly. You're Talking about fighting the MiG-23, that's another aspect of the 23. I don't want to come in close. I want to get way far away, get way back behind someone, and then run them down.
1: But as an F-15 or F-16 pilot, you're saying, well, he's not a threat, but he will be in about a very short period of time.
0: Well, that's what we learned. That was one of the things that we taught people was the F-15 and F-16 community had what we call drop criteria. He's too far away, I'll drop him. That worked against another F-15 and F-16, but it did not work against the MiG-23. And that was one of the lessons that we could learn at Constant Peggy. A typical MiG-21 sortie would be three-tenths or four-tenths of an hour because it was, it's a point defender. So the F-15s, F-16s, F-14s would take off from Nellis, five to Tonopah. We wouldn't even take off until they were 100 miles away and we would do our engagements and training, and we'd land and they have to go back. So a typical US fighter sortie is 1.2, 1.3. Our typical sortie was 0.3, 0.4, 0.5. In the MiG-23. In the, in the MiGs, in the MiGs yeah, yeah. The 21 was a little bit shorter than the 23. And we would fly eight turn eight. We'd fly 16 MiG-21s a day, Tuesday through Friday, week after week after week. By the way, in the summertime, it's hot desert. In the wintertime at Tonpa, it gets pretty frigid and we would get minus 25 degree wind chills and we're still out there flying. And these airplanes, the whole time I was there, I only remember one ground abort on a MiG-21. That's a pretty phenomenal sortie record. Those airplanes were built to fly well, and our maintenance guys flew well with them also. MiG-23 was a little different. It was more complicated. We had less ability to forecast things that would break, so if something seriously broke, like a hydraulic line, we would down the fleet for a month or so while we figured out what had happened. So we could take all of our airplanes, which weren't that many, we could take all of our airplanes and inspect them and do what we needed to do to prevent that malfunction from, from happening again. So we are a little bit more cautious with the MiG-23s, but we flew a three turn three of those
2: and they flew pretty well. One of our listeners asked a really good question. Sure. Uh, a lot of air combat involves missiles. How did you simulate Soviet missiles?
0: Well, we did the same way we we simulated a gunshot. We didn't actually have a gun go off. Uh, We would just get in position and we'd make a call that indicated we estimated we're in a good firing position. So we had approximate firing positions that we would use for the Russian ATOL missiles. That's their infrared-guided missile. And if we achieved those parameters, we would make a radio call that says, hey, we think we're in these parameters. And that would be something we shouldn't have achieved. It would represent a point that we'd go to learn from and build a better constructive de- uh, defensive maneuver for the pilot.
1: Was there a gun camera film on the uh, MiGs?
0: No. We did have instrumentation at the very end of the program, ACMI instrumentation. The Nellis ranges had towers that could record your position and so forth. And so we carried these big pods at the very tail end and we could be watched and we could reconstruct that way. But for the most part, no recording devices. U.S. airplanes that came to fly against us did have recording devices. But again, the security of the program was paramount. And so the tapes that they made were sequestered. We could use them for debrief, but they could not take them back home with them.
1: ACM iPods usually carried on American airplanes. And what it does, you can have a computer tracking system that actually would tell you whether you had a good shot or not, but you only had that toward the end of the program.
0: Yeah, very limited. We had a hard time mounting it and the compatibility and so forth. So we've been, used it very little.
1: So let's talk about constant pay, you know, as being kind of a solution to a problem. You know, what was the problem?
0: The lessons that were learned from Vietnam, I mean, they could have been sugar coated and put in the file cabinet, but our leadership at the time was determined to make changes that were good. They were very visionary. And, and this red flag thing was was a huge change from the sixties. Aggressors, a huge change from the 60s. You know, you and I used to fly against another F-4 and it might have big stripes on it so we could know that that was the bad F-4, not the good F-4, really hard to do. Similar training. Similar training versus dissimilar training training and dedicated adversaries. And so a couple of very visionary people said, let's go get some of their airplanes. Let's get their stuff Mm -hmm. and we fly it and use that for training. It's the ultimate dedicated adversary. It's the ultimate realistic adversary. Let's just go do that and it was over the top, but it was exactly what we needed.
1: All right, here's the most interesting question we got from our audience from the first session. Yeah. How did we acquire these airplanes?
0: Well, that's a great question. What's been declassified, what we can talk about is the fact that we had the airplanes, John, and that we used them in training sorties. What has not been declassified is source information because, you know, that's country to country and stuff like that. But let's just talk a little bit about how MiGs make it throughout the world. So, MiG stands for McCoyan and Guryevich, those are the two designers of the MiG aircraft. They had what the Russians called a design bureau. So they'd build the airplanes, the MiG-15, the MiG-17, 21, 23, 29, all the MiG airplanes that they built are built there. And then either Russia would keep it, or it would go to, at the time, the Soviet bloc countries, such as well Bulgaria, where this one came from, or it would go to a client state. So there'd be some within Russia, some within the Soviet bloc, and some outside the Soviet bloc, with countries that were still aligned with the Soviet Union, so that's how those cu- aircraft would be dispersed, and then that would be represent opportunities to acquire aircraft.
1: You know, so Chuck, on the airplane that we have here, I think it's interesting for the audience to understand a little bit about how we got it, and that it came from Bulgaria, and the fact that we've actually talked over the internet with a crew chief of a Bulgarian Air Force. It actually worked on the airplane that we have in the museum. So tell us a little bit about the history of that.
2: Our MiG was made in 1984 in a factory in Dubna, about 40 miles north of Moscow. And it went directly to the Bulgarian Air Force, uh, along with several others. And Bulgaria only used it within their own borders for air-to-air combat it was not a ground attack airplane it didn't even have drop tanks because bulgaria is a small enough country you can defend your country with what what's in the tanks so it flew there until the collapse of the soviet union and then for you know a couple of years afterwards it was still in in regular use eventually they didn't have the resources to support the air force and they had really no no reason to have an active air force so the airplane sat unattended on an open hard stand for years, from like 1994 until, well, essentially until about 2007 when they brought it here. It had a couple of other flights. I think its last flight was in 2001, and then a bunch of American businessmen and pilots pooled their resources and bought, depending on who you talk to, 10 or 11 MiG-23s from Bulgaria, shipped them to the United States. and Their intention was, with parts from these MiGs, they can assemble one or two flyable MiGs, fly them in air shows, what a toy for the guy who's got everything. These airplanes, they didn't have the ability to pay to have them hangered, so they sat in the West Texas sun for another nine years. And then finally, they did build a flyable two-seat MiG-23 out of it, and they started giving away the other airframes to museums. And that is how we got ours in 2019, I think it came to the museum. So it's an
1: example of how you can acquire these airplanes, just like a civilian, as opposed to you know buying it through the military.
2: Yeah, after so. the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was pretty easy because the client states weren't clients anymore. And a lot of third world countries, Ethiopia, Pakistan, you know, the smaller countries, they needed cash and they had sellable assets. So they can be had.
1: You know, for our audience, it might be of interest that when we were studying about the MiG-23 and we were in Europe uh, during the Cold War, tell us a little bit about how the commonalities of some of the equipment was actually NATO standard. Sure.
0: Of course, I'm just talking about intel reports, which I think were probably pretty accurate. The Soviets intended to invade Western Europe, and therefore they wanted their equipment to work with ground support equipment that NATO had. So the NATO fuel trucks could refuel the MiGs and so forth and so on. So the auto ground equipment was compatible, but it was all one way. Their stuff would not fuel our airplanes. Also the MiG-23 had trailing link landing gear, which enabled it to operate off unimproved surfaces. So it could also land, stop on a very short distance and operate forward locations in an invasive type force.
1: Other people were flying it. You bet. Can you explain maybe one of the stories, uh, you know, because we're always interested in in how somebody handles an emergency?
0: One of our guys had a wing sweep failure. Now, let me try to explain the gravity of a wing sweep failure. Wings were straight out for takeoff and landing. When they're straight out, you can put the flaps down. If you couldn't put the flaps down, your approach speed was 245 knots. If you couldn't get the wings forward, I don't know what your approach speed should be because we never talked about that. Mm. But one day, One of our guys came back to land, and as he was trying to move the wings forward to land, he had the hydraulic failure. A line had chafed, caused the failure, and his wings were stuck not all the way far forward. So they weren't all the way forward. His flaps weren't down. I think he flew final somewhere around 280 to 300 knots, and he was able to land it like that. I don't know how the tires survived the touchdown. That would be the kind of thing that we would deal with from time to time when something would happen we didn't have an aircraft manufacturer we could call and say, hey, now what should we do while the guy's flying? We just had to figure out what to do on the fly. That particular pilot did a really awesome job bringing it in and landing it.
1: Because when we have an emergency in an airplane, you know, we would talk to the supervisor of flying the tower. He would help us read the checklist. We yeah. would go over some things if there was time. Or you could call a manufacturer yeah. of the airplane and say, hey, we got this particular issue. Do you have any solutions? Obviously you didn't
0: have that capability. We didn't have any ability to, for referencing documents, we couldn't call around. The soft in the tower, supervisor flying the tower, and the pilot discussed what to do, and they did it in a matter of minutes. Everybody lived, everybody walked away from it. That's an example of a malfunction that happened. We handled it, we downed the fleet until we figured out how to prevent that from happening again. The wing sweep thing makes a huge difference in the way the airplane flies. I'm really still surprised to this day that this guy was able to bring the airplane back as well as he did
1: when you look at the f4 and then you look at the mig-23 there's some similarities there okay. the variable you know, ra- vane, you know to be able to keep it from uh, the engine intake having supersonic air yes. to the number of holes that are on there yes to the splitter vane that connects the you know fuselage to the engine yes some of those are very similar to the f40 can you talk about that it certainly
0: looks like they copied some of our ideas some of the later model MiG twenty ones had something called BLC, Boundary Layer Control. You know, and the F four Ds that we flew had BLC, and it helped us a little bit. Unless you're single engine, because it robbed a lot of a lot of your power. And uh, I think the, that the later model MiG twenty ones discovered that BLC helped them fly a little bit, but it also robbed them a lot, a lot of their power. Yes, they copied us. It's clear that they did. I'm not always sure that that was a good thing for them, but hey, that's that's their deal.
1: But it's fascinating to see the reverse engineering. That we would see on our aeroplanes and then it would show up on theirs. So yes. That's the case in point. Yes. And I'm sure. sure that's true today too.
0: Espionage. People steal from each other. You have a good idea, I'm gonna steal it. The Chinese do it all the time. Yes, the Russians have copied our stuff. That's part of the reason that we have classifications. That's part of the challenges that a country such as ours, we pride ourselves on free speech, on being open and so forth. But we have to protect some things. It would be very nice to advertise at the time we had this constant peg program, but advertising it would be detrimental to our security. So, stealing things from someone else, them stealing it from us, it happens, and we have to work to prevent other people from getting
2: our good stuff. You know, it's very obvious, just from me looking at the MiG-23, how different that design philosophy is from American design philosophy. And I understand that that also extends to the Soviets' attitude about training, war-making, directing their fighter pilots. Can you explain a little bit about the differences between American and Soviet philosophies?
0: Within America, we tend to focus on our differences and we we criticize and so forth. But when you get right down to it, we actually work pretty good as a team. We have pilots and we have designers and we talk a lot to each other. In the F-15, and I'm sure the F-16, we had software tapes that were modified. The pilots said, we need this, we need that. The designers would talk, we can give you this, we can give you that. And we would get an airplane that was really easy to fly in terms of switches and man-machine interface. And we we're really good with that. Desert Storm kind of shows some of that. The MiGs show the opposite. Things that I think are important in the airplane aren't there. Switches are everywhere. You can't just go in the cockpit and flip things and be ready to go. You have to be very deliberate with everything that you do because nothing is intuitive. If you were to go talk to someone who flew those airplanes and trained in their system, you'd kind of get the same thing. This is not important to me because I'm a pilot. Or at the end of our engagement, you go to the northeast corner, I'll go to the southwest corner, we'll sit up again, but they won't do that. Someone has to tell them real time Turn right to northeast. Wow. So, one of the things that I got out of this program was the value of the U.S. system versus the Russian system. We're a team. We work together with everybody. Those guys are very stovepiped. Now, this is my opinion, but I would also point out that I don't know what's the score now 101 to nothing. U.S. equipped countries that train under U.S. methods have done much better against russian equipped countries training under russian methods whether it's the israeli 67 war the 73 war anything you want to talk about desert storm the scorecard doesn't lie the design philosophies are all different the way they operate is different in every aspect of their society i wonder why people
2: even buy their equipment thanks that's a great answer and i would just advise to go back and see episode one where we do a, a walk around of the mig-23 you can see some of those differences of design philosophy. Another listener asks, you know, we had Red Flag, Top Gun, Constant Peg. Did the Soviet Union have any kind of similar training using American airplanes? Well, the
0: honest answer to that question, Chuck, is I don't know. Might they have? Of course they might have. Remember how I went through the Russia had airplanes and the bloc countries had airplanes, the client nations had airplanes? Well, we sold F-4s and F-14s to Iran and they went from being our client to a Russian client. So is the potential there? Absolutely. Did they do it? I don't know.
1: You know, there's a story one time we heard where a MiG-23 was up in, you know, the northern parts of, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, and they used alcohol as some of the hydraulic fluid. And then there was stories about siphoning off the alcohol and and the pilots and the crew chiefs were drinking. Is that a story that you remember hearing?
0: There are lots of stories we've heard our lives. And I think one of the things we learned was perhaps don't believe every story that you hear. Since you bring it up, and since we're going to put this public, I'd like to make sure everybody understands we did not do anything like that.
1: (laughs) Good point. How about the other one that was fascinating to me when we learned about the MiG-23 when we were studying the enemy was how they really just flew that MiG-23 for about 100 hours in the engine, and they replaced it.
0: Yeah, I've heard a couple of different numbers. I've heard 100 hours, 200 hours. The engine was not durable. You know, when you fly an airline flight, when the airplane takes the runway, it takes upwards of 15 seconds for their engines to spool up. They're going from pretty hot while they're in idle to really, really hot at takeoff power. And so that 15 seconds allows the temperature to transit over a period of time. It helps with, with uh, the life of the turbine blades. In so an airline. In an airline. But the 21 was a second and a half to full power, and full power was a bang. So there was no consideration, really, when they built that airplane to having a 5,000-hour engine. It was a couple hundred hours, and you're going to have to fix something.
2: In
1: the American system, we sustain our engines you know, for you know, thousands and thousands of hours and not yes. take an engine for 200 hours or whatever it was and then throw it away and then put a new one in. So Interesting comparison. True statement, very true. John, uh, we've talked about the pilots, we've talked about the training, we've talked about the aspects, but well, let's talk about maintainers right now. Sure. Tell us a little about about the success stories that really, you know, some of those heroes that we wanted to be able to recognize that maintain our airplanes all the time.
0: Well, the first thing I'll say, John, is that within our squadron, our maintenance guys were our heroes because they kept us flying well. But I will make that statement to every squadron I've ever been in. Right. I walk out to an airplane and it's an amazing piece of equipment and it worked and it worked very well but with respect to the constant peg squadron you know an airplane arrives in a c5 here let's, we, we want to fly this would you please inspect it and they don't have training on it they don't have tech data on it they want to take the wings off they don't have support equipment to hold the wings they've never taken the wings off before i could go on and on and on but our maintenance team did that they did exactly that our mig-21s just flew like crazy our MiG-23s did also, except for the logistical tail, mostly the engines, or when we would have the occasional snafu like the hydraulic failure and the wing sweep stopping. But that is yet another success story. Those guys went and figured out what happened, rerouted our equipment. That normally is done by engineers that built the airplane, not by people who have seen it for a couple of years and, and messed with it. So our maintenance guys were just super. In all airplane things, everybody talks about pilots this and pilots that. We really neglect the true heroes of any aircraft organization, but particularly in the case of the constant peg program on maintenance guys.
1: Yeah, I think that's an amazing observation. I mean, you're getting something, you don't have any background, any training, yeah. any manufacturing data on and you're able to make it work. So it really is a, a good part of the story. And, and as
0: Chuck mentioned, the one you guys got from Bulgaria had been sitting forever. Well. If you're going to get a government to give you one of their airplanes, are they going to give you their best
1: one? (laughs) So, besides maintainers, talk about the supply challenges.
0: Again, we're trying to keep the program clandestine. So, you can't just go down to town to Las Vegas to a machine shop and say, make all these parts for us because it becomes obvious eventually that you're making stuff for something that these guys have never seen before. And that creates curiosity. So, we would try to get stuff made from different places to keep the logistical train invisible to the casual observer. In the same vein that our maintenance guys had severe challenges, our supply guys had extraordinary challenges also.
1: What were some of the things that needed to be done to keep it secret?
0: The word secret is an interesting word, right? You and I both have secret clearances. We can look at secret documents. But there's also compartmentalization of some secret topics. In other words, just because you have a secret clearance, you may not have access to this secret program. Our program was compartmentalized like that. Someone would come in on a Sunday, we would brief them on Monday on the program, and they would sign an affidavit that said if they talk about the program, they're gonna go to jail, they'll they'll be a felon. And they'd fly throughout the week in the program. They'd sign a second document that says, I no longer have access to this program. Even though they knew about the airplanes and had done training, they could not talk, even to each other, any more about the program. That was how we tried to keep the program close held. We also tracked satellites going by overhead, Try to keep the airplanes off the parking ramp, off the taxiways, when a foreign satellite was overhead. I mean everybody knows where everyone's satellites are, and so if an adversary satellite or a foreign satellite was going to be overhead taking imagery photos of our area, we would be in a hangar during that period so that we would protect the assets that way. Another piece of the security thing, John, Tonopah Test Airfield is in a restricted area. No one can just drive up to Tonopah and onto the base there. And other aircraft flying around can't just land there. If they were to land there with an emergency, of course they could do that, but then we would sequester them and have a debriefing and so forth. So a lot of physical security in the airfield, we had the compartmentalization of the program, we had people signing affidavits, and that was all in an effort to keep this program
2: closely held. We get this listener question a lot on the previous episode. So Constant Peg was a very successful program. Dissimilar training is a great idea. It ended. Is there any current program that does the same thing?
0: There's two parts to your question. One was the dissimilar dedicated adversary question. My understanding is that that is outsourced now at places like Nellis and places around the states where there are dedicated adversaries that provide what the tactical air forces need to train against. The second part of your question is, do we have something constant peg-like going on today? I would just remind you that part of our program was security, not talking about it. We don't wanna show our playbook to the other team. We don't want the other team to know what we've got going. So if we were to have something, I would expect that nobody knows about it because it would be very important today, just like it was back in my time, it would be very important to keep security on that. It's a great question. Everybody has these questions and I would like for all of us to know everything. But if all of us know everything, then the bad guys do too, and that's just not good for us. So I would expect the program, if it exists, to be tightly wrapped in security.
2: I appreciate that answer, and it would be a good indicator of our security that we don't hear anything. Agreed. Yeah, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, what were some of the lessons that we learned from constant peg? Well, Chuck, at the
0: individual level, we've gotten over buck fever. I've watched the airplane fly. I've learned how to beat it. But let's talk big picture at the Air Force level. You know, back in the 30s, a guy named Billy Mitchell envisioned a separate Air Force and advocated for that strongly, and the results have been pretty good. I would say that in a similar vein we had a couple of lieutenant colonels and colonels and a a two-star general that had the the audacity to dream of going out and getting the other guy's stuff and training with it and they didn't have a lot of support at first but they were persistent they got an airfield built at tonopah they got all, all these hangars built all the stuff up there we executed the program with tremendous results one of the huge lessons learned for me is that our air force All of our military has to always be looking into the future and dreaming big and then making the big dreams happen.
2: Otherwise, we get stuck in a rut. What I also would love to hear you talk about, you've had a wonderful career. You've done a lot of really exciting and adventurous things. What would you say to a young person today who is hearing your voice and thinking, boy, that's something I could get into. What advice would you give them? Well,
0: first, Chuck, you're correct. I've had a blessed life. I've had remarkable opportunities, and I've been able to take advantage of them and do some really great things, not just flying airplanes, but mission-wise. To anybody out there listening to this podcast, I would say, if aviation is something that interests you, you should go out and pursue it. You know, just a few weeks ago, a woman who was 104 years old jumped out of an airplane from 13,500 feet. She just wanted to go do it. Is that not cool? That is way cool. I mean, she is my hero. If you're in retirement or if you're older and aviation isn't going to be your career, you can still go sample it just like that woman did. Go jump out of an airplane. Go get an intro ride at your local airport. You can find a glider ride. Soaring Society of America can find you a place to get a a glider ride. Go sample it, taste it. The world looks quite different from three or 4,000 feet up than it does walking around on the ground. If you're a young person, aviation isn't going to go anywhere except up. It won't look like It does today, there'll be more automation, there'll be more software type things, but airplanes are gonna be around. We fly around now where the sky is blue and your museum has a black sky thing going because when you get higher and higher, the sky turns black. Aviation of the future is gonna include probably suborbital type trips to Europe or someplace else. It will also include trips into space. There will always be something for you to do in aviation. If wrenching is your thing, you like to turn a wrench on cars, motorcycles, or whatever, the future is huge for you also. There will always be an airframe that needs repairing, an engine that needs repairing. And today, avionics is huge. Avionics repair is gonna be huge in the future, and design. So if aviation might be your thing, there's opportunities out there. And I would advocate for anyone to strongly advocate,
2: go pursue your dreams. That is a great, encouraging thing. I echo that, and I would also add that wrenching can lead to to flying, and i paid my way through flight school turning wrenches in a, in a gas station. Uh, Good for you. The more you know about what you're flying, the better pilot you are. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for being here, and I really appreciate this.
1: John? Retired Colonel of the United States Air Force, thanks for your stories. I think it's going to be a real benefit to our audience to understand a little bit more about our history and the significance of the challenges that we overcame coming out of the Vietnam War and going to the point where we really have had air dominance by the United States for decades now. And with your story, I hope to keep it and excite people in the future to be able to do that as we go into the next few decades. Oh, thanks again, John.
0: It's my pleasure. I'll come up anytime. You guys have a great museum. The schools you guys have got going for kids are great. This is just like what America is all about, but I'm honored that you asked me to be up here and be a part of this.
2: Wow, this topic had so much intrigue and interest that I knew it would be a fun one to revisit for part two. There were so many interesting aspects that I hadn't considered And I really loved when you told us about some of the differences between Soviet and American philosophies, like the knuckle wrapper that that smacks the knuckles of the pilots when they do something wrong. What were your takeaways, John? One
1: of the things that was particularly exciting about this segment was we were able to be able to tell a story about Constant Peg, where a lot of us who were fighter pilots during the 70s and 80s uh, got an opportunity to fly against the MiGs uh, that were flown by pilots like John Mann and get through that buck fever, you know, the first 10 sorties, if if you're in combat and you can survive those first 10 sorties, you have an opportunity to be probably successful. It's proven in combat many times. So by going and flying against the enemy aircraft and actually seeing what their capabilities really enhanced our ability to be more ready for combat and be able to be more
2: effective in fighting enemy aircraft particularly for the MiG-21 and the MiG-23. Well, that'll do it folks for episode 30 and season three of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be taking a short nap, I mean a short break as we wrap up season three but stick around. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Behind the Wings podcast. And if you wanna come and see the MiG-23 or the F-4 or the other aircraft that we talked about, please come visit Wings Over the Rockies in Denver, Colorado. We'd love to see you here. If you've made it this far, leave us a review. It helps us a lot. And we really appreciate your questions and comments. And as you've seen, we do listen and we do get back to you. We'll see you next time, right here on Behind the Wings.